Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, and we've gotten up to verses 23 through 31. Hear the word of God. And being let go, they went to their companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word. It is our desire to submit to it, to grow through it, uh, to be sanctified. We uh, hear Christ's words, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. And, Father, we come desiring to continue to worship you with the responses that we have. May the meditations of our heart be acceptable through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This passage that we read is one of many that has made people long for a New Testament uh, Christianity, and you can see why. Uh, there was a, a power, there was a boldness there that is many times lacking in our churches. Uh, they had signs and wonders, they had an effectiveness of ministry. There were many things that flowed from this passage that people say, boy, I wish we had these in our churches. Well, actually, there are uh, many of these types of things going on in India and in China and in other places. And uh, what I want to look at is what is at the root of what uh, was going on in this passage. And I believe that in part it was prayer. Uh, the book of Acts indicates that prayer was the first job of missions. It's the first job of the family. It's the first job of leadership. And this whole passage describes a church prayer meeting and then ends in verse 31 saying, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. When they had prayed. Now evangelism is a very critical task in the church. Uh, we're called to it. We must engage in it. But effective evangelism flows out of prayer. When they had prayed. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential if we're going to have success in our Christianity. But he indicates here that the filling of the Holy Spirit, again, came out of their prayer. It came out of a church that was knit to God in prayer. And uh, this book is divided up, as we have seen in the past, into six sections, each section ending with a statement of the incredible expansion of Christ's uh, kingdom. But in between, sandwiched in between those statements, are all kinds of lessons on prayer. And what I'm going to do today, even though we've been going verse by verse through this book, is I'm not going to deal with this passage as a whole. We're going to look at a couple lessons from this passage. 
But next week, we're going to go verse by verse through it, and I want to back up and just do a survey of the whole book of Acts and look at some of the lessons that God has for us in the various passages on prayer. Now, we're not going to look at every passage, but hopefully we'll give you enough that uh, there will be uh, plenty uh, that will give you a good taste. Um, Turn, first of all, to Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. This passage says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. Their first duty was not to go. Now, the Great Commission was a commandment to go, right? But their first duty was to go into Jerusalem and to wait, to wait uh, upon the Lord. Before they could go, they needed the Holy Spirit. Before the Holy Spirit uh, would come and enable them, they needed to wait. And if you are not waiting upon the Lord in prayer, there's no point in getting involved in, in ministry because I think much of our zealous efforts in the church are all produced by our own strength and our own arm. Uh, they would continue to go on even if the Holy Spirit continued to you know, completely abandon the church. Uh, all, um, uh, much of what we do does does not shake the world, it shakes us and it wears us out. Uh, whereas in Isaiah it says, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. And so we've got to wait upon the Lord if we're going to have the strength to be able to run. Uh, those who wait upon the Lord avoid a harried ministry that's got burnout and anxiety uh, connected to it. But those who are not waiting on the Lord because they got so much to do, you know, we got to get on with things. Uh, we can't be wasting time. What they find happening is that they waste time running fast on a treadmill going nowhere. And I've experienced this many, many times in my own life where I think I've, I'm too busy to pray. And God says, okay, we'll see how busy you get. And you just waste your time. You, 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 you're on a treadmill going nowhere. J. Sidlow Baxter in his commentary on Nehemiah said this, Again and again as we watch Nehemiah, we're reminded of Cromwell's famous words, Trust in God and keep your powder dry. Speaking generally of today, there was a brilliant but frustrating overemphasis on the human the energetic and religious service. More than ever before, we wrestle with social problems in committees and conferences, but less than ever do we wrestle on our knees against evil spirit powers which lie behind the social evils of our day. Nearly everybody in committee has a fine program, but few indeed seem to have a real spiritual burden. The practical has overridden the spiritual, and when that happens, the practical becomes utterly unpractical. Now, the church in the 20th century is busy. There's no question about that. They're very involved in serving the Lord. But I think one of the evidences that our emphasis on the practical has become utterly unpractical is in the results that you see. We do not see a world that is being shaken, not in America anyway. We do see it in some other places. And waiting, I think, has got to be one of the hardest things for our prideful, self-sufficient hearts to do. It is so difficult. It's difficult for me to do as a pastor. Uh, I keep finding my, my, my soul wanting to get on with the work, and I have to check myself and say, wait, 
Wait on the Lord, because if we are not, if we're going into work apart from the blessing and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, then our work is all uh, uh, springing simply from the flesh. Uh, once we know what God wants us to do, we need to first of all wait to know, is this a ministry that God wants us to be involved in? Because there's all kinds of ministry opportunities being thrown at us. We've got to discern which ones do, does God want us to be involved in. And then knowing what he wants us to be involved in, we need to wait upon him for strength, for empowering, for wisdom. Now, there is a balance uh, sometimes, you know, the trust God and keep your powder dry. Sometimes you've got to be praying while you're working, right? And sometimes the, the two go together. And I've got to admit, Isaiah does not say, those who wait upon the Lord shall roost like chickens. Uh, some people uh, see that as a very passive type of a thing. No, it says they will run, right, and not be weary. So there is a balance. But at the same time, uh, we need to keep in mind that the greatest missionary movement of all time, of all history, here in the book of Acts, began by waiting on the Lord. And if you're constantly distracted in your prayer time thinking, oh, I need to get on with this and the other thing, you need to check your spirit and say, wait, wait upon the Lord. Now, a second lesson revolves around how they waited on the Lord. If you take a look at chapter 1, verse 14... It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. It wasn't just the apostles who waited. Uh, the leaders were there, but the brethren were there. The women were there. Uh, the, the, the church corporate was engaged in prayer. Now, there's a place, a very important place, for praying individually and praying privately. But I think there's things that God... Uh, causes to wait upon the corporate prayers of the church as well. And you see, over and over again, it's as the church corporately prays in Acts that God busts things open, not just in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and 4, but all the way through this book, you see that this is the thing that preceded leadership. This is the thing that preceded the sending out of missionaries, the, the breaking through of, of Peter being able to get out of jail and other things like that. Corporate prayer as a foundation for all ministry. A third principle we see in that same verse, and that's in the, the words, verse 14, where it says, these all continued. Now, the Greek is a very strong word. It's translated in chapter 2, verse 42, as they continued steadfastly. Now, let me quote the dictionary. It says this word means this, quote, to adhere to, persist in, to be faithful to, to busy oneself in, to persevere in something, to spend much time in something. And I think it's not by accident that that word is connected with prayer here. Six times in the first half of this book, uh, it, it talks, uh, uses this word in connection with prayer to indicate that prayer is supposed to be a part of our life. It needs to be pervasive uh, throughout our life. They continued steadfastly in prayers. Their lives were bathed in prayer. I, I, the idea of persevering, though, I think is very important because many people give up just about the time when harvest is going to come along. And um, we need to think of our prayer life as leading to a harvest. Sometimes God does instantly answer our prayers, but there's other times when there's a timing issue that is involved. And Paul says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And so that aspect of persevering, persisting in prayer, I think is an important lesson. 
The fourth lesson from this book is also seen in that uh, verse in that it describes it as being purposeful prayer. Purposeful. Uh, That word occurs 11 times in Acts, and it describes the united purpose, the united mind that the church had. Uh, Prayer takes on a new energy and a new dynamic when it is gripped by a common purpose and a common vision. Uh, if the only reason you come to prayer is because you feel guilty and you say, oh, I've got to pray, or uh, other people are expecting you to, or it's the time, you're not going to have what it takes to be able to persevere. Purpose gives burden. Burden produces fervent prayer, and fervent prayer is what Scripture says is effectual. The, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so fervent uh, purpose in prayer is the foundation for fervent effectual prayer. Now, Mike uh, Elliott's uh, pulling together some, some different uh, papers and uh, inserts into your three-ring prayer binders and uh, other helpful guides to help our church to have a purpose, a vision, and in what it is that we are praying for so that we can be united on that. And hopefully they'll help to flesh out our purpose and vision. A fifth lesson I have learned is that prayer must be a top priority. Chapter 2, And verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. I'm not going to say a lot on this, except for that it has the fourth place of priority in that church. And I want to ask if prayer has at least the fourth place of priority in your lives. Okay, next lesson. Uh, is in chapter 3, verse 1. This is the sixth lesson. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. God has given set times of prayer in the temple. He gave a schedule that they were to pray by. And what this shows to me is that there needs to be a balance between scheduled prayer and spontaneous prayer. Spontaneous prayer is a great thing, but God has made us to be creatures of habit, and He, right in His Word, had set times of prayer that He wanted people to be able to be praying in. Now, some people have uh, an issue with this. They think that that's legalistic. They think it just doesn't show, you know, your spontaneous expressions of love to the Lord. Well, fine, let's do the spontaneous, but don't think that being unscheduled shows that you don't care about God. Think about it like this. If the only time that your wife made um, meals for you was when she felt like making meals for you, it wouldn't be very fun, would it? Um, You know, maybe one day she's uh, got insomnia and so she cooks breakfast at 4 a.m., nothing else to do anyway. And so you've got to get up if you're going to eat. And on another day, uh, cooks it at 10 a.m., long after you've gone, so you have to miss uh, breakfast on that day. That wouldn't be very fun. Nobody thinks that your wife is being legalistic and doesn't love you because there's set times that you eat, right? No, that's an expression of love. And in the same way, God delights when we have scheduled prayer. He delights in our spontaneous prayers as well. But God approves of our, our, our prayer that we have set in concrete into our schedule. And I encourage you guys to have some set prayers. Now, at the temple there, it was at 9, 3 p.m. and sunset. 
And it doesn't matter where you schedule it, but we're creatures of habit. And if you do not have it at the same time every day, the likelihood is you're going to forget, right? You're not going to be involved in it. And so if you're going to set a habit in motion, it's got to be something that's repeated over a period of time. Maybe first thing when you get up. Maybe last thing before you go to bed, you have prayer. And, and sometime in between, maybe over lunch hour or something, you have a short uh, period of prayer as well. God made us to be creatures of habits. Habits are good, and we need to establish those habits. Okay, for our next lesson, look at chapter 4, the passage that we read, verses 23 through 31. Now, as I mentioned, next week I'm going to look at this in much more depth. But as we're doing our survey of the book of Acts on prayer today, I just want to look at two lessons here. Lesson seven is that we should pray the scriptures. He basically appeals to Genesis chapter one and then claims God's attributes. Uh, then he prays a portion of Psalm two and he lays claim to God's promises. This is what it means to be praying according to the will of God says, if we pray anything according to his will, there's two or three, you know, and we're not harboring sin in our heart, those are the bare conditions that he sets out, then he says he will answer us. Praying according to the will of God is not trying to second guess what his providence is going to be in the future. Praying according to the will of God means praying the revealed scriptures and taking God's character on our lips, His promises, uh, looking at His commandments, using the Word of God uh, to found our faith upon as we're offering up prayer. This is a way of really increasing uh, your faith uh, in the Scriptures. And I want you to notice here that he doesn't pray long texts of Scripture. He prays a very short, appropriate section. Then he applies it to themselves, this guy who's leading in the prayer here, and uh, I think powerful prayer is a scripture-filled prayer. Eighth lesson that we can learn can be seen not just in this section. You can see it all the way through the book. It's this. We should pray from the confidence that the victory has already been won. Now, that may seem a little bit strange to you because we still have battles that we're having to uh, wage, right? But um, in, the, in the prayers of the New Testament, we do not find people hoping that Jesus will someday win the victory. We pray out of a confidence that God has already predestined the victory in eternity past. Jesus has purchased the victory in his death. He's guaranteed the victory in his resurrection. And now what the Spirit is doing through the church is applying the implications of that victory that was already won. There's, this, is a, this is a huge issue uh, within prayer. There's a big difference between praying for victory and praying from a stance of victory already done. Jesus said, it is finished. And you might think, no, wait a shake. Isn't there a ton more work that has to be done and missions and other things? How can he say it's finished? Well, in principle, everything that was needed to win this world to Christ was accomplished on the cross, and what we are doing is simply working out the implications of Christ's finished work. Nothing more needs to be added. He says, I, I if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself, John 12, 32. So everything needed to draw the world to himself was accomplished in 30 A.D. Uh, it is finished. That spelled Satan's doom. 
In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation. Now, that's the future tense. So he's saying, yeah, there's going to be skirmishes. There's going to be battles you're going to have to face. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Not I will overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Uh, his victory is already guaranteed. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. John 12, verse 31. Now, if you're convinced that the victory is sealed, it is guaranteed, it's already given to us, it's in our hands, then when you pray based from that stance on victory, it's going to hugely increase your faith. So take a look at this passage, Acts chapter 4, and look at verse 24. First of all, he bases it on the victory of God's Godhead. He says, Lord, you are God. We're not in doubt about the fact that you are in charge. You are God. Goes on to affirm a confidence in God's control of creation. Verse 24, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. This is not a finite God who is subject to his creation, you know, who's kind of wringing his hands and hoping people won't mess it up. Hoping upon hope, you know, that people will come to him. No, that's the creation, subject to the creator. They had absolute confidence that God was in charge. In verses 25 through 26, he goes on to quote the promise that King Jesus has been guaranteed the victory and any opposition that he receives is an opposition that is utterly in vain. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? All of the opposition that China and India and Saudi Arabia and other countries are bringing is absolutely in vain. Why? Because he's seated on his throne. God's already given to him the nations, and it's just a matter of the timing as to him taking those nations in. Now, this prayer does complain that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews have been persecuting them and have been plotting against them in verse 27, but they go on to hurry on to say that God was the one who ordained this persecution. That's kind of a twist, isn't it? He says, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And so this leads them to say, Lord, since this is the case, since you are the one who is ordaining all of these things and moving history irresistibly forward, we pray that you would cause these very threats to show forth your victory and to show forth uh, your power through Jesus. And that's in uh, verses 29 through 30. Then they pray for a boldness that is consistent with that victory. Can you see that? From beginning to end, it's a prayer of faith in God's victory, and it is no wonder, it is no wonder that God answers uh, those, uh, pr that prayer with power. I think too many times when we pray, we're praying like that first generation of Israelites in the wilderness. They're promised the victory, and uh, they want to go in, and uh, initially they don't want to go in. Then God says, okay, you're not going to have it. And then they want to go in. But they pray, and then they go out of their prayer and they complain. They act as if God is not going to answer. They believe the report of the ten spies, whereas Joshua and Caleb, they know God can give them the victory. Why? Because he's already ordained that victory. It's as good as done in eternity past, as it were. And so they want to charge in there, and they want to... Uh, do the battles from a stance of victory. And that's the same as this prayer. I think it makes all the difference whether we pray in faith or whether we pray with a lack of faith. Now take a look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. This is the ninth lesson. 
Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The ninth lesson is that prayer is the first priority for elders. We've already seen that it's the fourth priority for the church as a whole, but here it is the first priority for the apostles. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, I think if pastors and elders would really lay hold of this ministry mandate of prayer, it would completely transform the kind of other ministries that we are involved in. Um, in China, prayer is the first priority. When I was over there, it's just amazing. They spend hours in prayer. In fact, you can't even be in ministry because the people expect that you're going to be a man of God, you're going to be in prayer. And it's no wonder to me that the church has grown to 200 million Christians in that nation. In Korea, they spend hours in prayer. And it's no wonder to me that Christianity has been so widespread in that nation. In fact, they're sending out missionaries to other countries from that nation. Now, there are a lot of things that congregations will pressure their pastors and their elders into being involved in, and that can be appropriate. But if you want to really put good pressure on your leaders, constantly find out, are they men of prayer? You know, this has got to be a first priority for the leaders in our congregation. And I need to be held to account on that. I was just confessing to Kathy the other day. You know, I was reading in the Scripture and once again realizing, I've got to be in everything surrounding my ministry in prayer. Now, we have to skip over uh, a pile of uh, lessons here, but I think one important one can be found in chapter 7 and verse 60. Now, Stephen's already been a man of prayer, but I want you to notice here that his prayer life enabled him to bless his enemies. This is the tenth lesson. His prayer life enabled him to bless his enemies. In fact, it enabled him to be so concerned for their souls, that even while they're stoning him, he's praying for them. It enabled him to be rid of all bitterness. Look at verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's hard to weep and wrestle in prayer for your enemies, as Stephen had been doing, and to still hate your enemies. It's hard to weep and wrestle in prayer for your family and to be bitter against your family or to be indifferent to your family because those prayers are going to engender within you a burden and a love for those that you are praying for, even the ones who are frustrating you, who are persecuting you. Now, I have to confess, I do not have the kind of love and the kind of passion for the lost that God gave to to Paul in Romans 9, 1 through 3. Read that sometime. But Paul in that passage says that he wished that he could be cut off from Christ and sent to hell, that's what it means to be accursed there, if it would mean that his fellow Jews could become Christians. Now, that's an amazing, absolutely amazing statement. In fact, Paul recognizes that people are going to say, yeah, right, you wish you could go to hell if they could be saved. Who's going to do that? Uh, and so three times he says, I am not lying. I'm telling the truth. My conscience is bearing witness that I have this deep desire. We have such a, 
what's it called? A, an instinct for self-preservation built within us that only the Holy Spirit could give that kind of a deep, deep burden and passion for other people. But you know how that came? How the Spirit brought that? It was through Paul's intense prayer life for those who were lost. Extended intercessory prayer gives us a totally different perspective on those that we are dealing with. It's remarkable to me when I was in China to see the hunger for the salvation of their persecutors rather than wanting them to go to hell <laughs> that the Chinese have, praying for them, extending love to those who are, are persecuting them. Praying over the, gray, uh, over the globe gave William Carey such a burden for India that he ended up going to India and laying down his life there. This has happened to many other Christians. Praying for others, those who are even persecuting, like, like Stephen did here, takes away anger, takes away bitterness, takes away uh, a wrath and, and hatred for them. And the same thing can happen for us. If you lack love, passion, burden for X, Y, Z, you can fill in the blanks of who it is. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Get down on your knees and start to pray and say, Holy Spirit, give me an ability to weep for these people, to groan for these people. Enable me by prayer to have your heart and start as you begin to weep and you begin to pray and to intercede for them. Ask Him to cleanse away the hatred, the bitterness, the frustrations that are in your heart. You will find a phenomenal thing happen when you begin to bless your enemies. When you begin to pray God's blessings into their lives rather than God's cursings into your lives, it will transform you from the inside out. There will be a remarkable change in your spirit, much like happened to Stephen. Turn next to Acts 9, verse 11. God has already converted Saul, but Saul was blind, not quite knowing what to do, and so God sends Ananias to pray for him and to heal him. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. The reason that Ananias is told to go and pray over Saul of Tarsus is it says, For behold, he is praying. Now, it's already been ordained. Uh, we know from the Scripture it's already been ordained that Ananias is going to do this and that Saul is going to be a minister for the Lord. But God does not give permission to Ananias to go until Paul starts praying. Now, the point of this is that even though God has predestined all things, ordained the ends that are going to happen, He ordains the means toward those ends as well. So if there is something that you desire to happen, it's the end that you're desiring to happen. Don't think it's going to happen unless you pray. You have not because you ask not. God ordains the prayers as well as the answers to those prayers. And if we desire things to be happening in our church, we need to be praying uh, for that end. Take a look at chapter 10, verse 4. Here's another lesson. An angel calls to Cornelius, and in verse 4 it says, When he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up, for a memorial before God. Now, you may not have thought of your prayers as being a sacrifice. Just like the sa all of the commentaries say the same thing. It's the language of sacrifice. Just as the sacrifices of the Old Testament were burning and the smoke would go up to heaven, his alms and his prayers were ascending up to heaven as well. Now, here's the, the point that I'm going to be making. 
Not all prayers, not all sacrifices in the Old Testament whose smoke went up to heaven were received by heaven. In Isaiah and in Amos, God says, your sacrifices are a stench in my nostrils. They're loathsome to me. He would not receive them. So what made these uh, prayers and alms get past the ceiling? What made them be a memorial, be remembered by God? And John Calvin says it wasn't because he was any great person in the church. He wasn't actually in the church at that point. He wasn't a Jew. He says the reason that they were received is simply because he had faith. That was the only, that was the only issue. I was uh, reading John 14 in my devotions on Saturday morning, and Jesus said these words about faith. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Greek is amen, amen, I say to you, very strong assurance, he who believes in me, and that's the only condition he gives there, just believe in him, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. He doesn't say if you're an apostle or if you're somebody great, he who believes in me, do you believe in Christ? He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What an incredible promise that he gives to us there. All he requires is belief, faith. You know, he's already provided all the conditions in Christ Jesus. He's got all the merit. He's already told us he is glorified when we pray. He's glorified to answer our prayers. Jesus has given us permission. And so that ought to be an incredible confidence. All that is needed for our prayers to be answered is faith. Now, of course, we always have taught before, faith uh, always is uh, the flip side of what? Repentance, right? So that's why it says, if you hold iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear, because you can't have genuine faith if there is no repentance. But the, the point is, if you have faith, you're going to have your prayers answered. And so be encouraged with that. Now let's move on to another lesson. This is Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we're getting near the end here, describes Herod's persecution of the church. Peter is thrown into jail. Verse 4 says, four squads of soldiers are guarding uh, are guarding Peter, and the, the Greek there uh, indicates each squad has four soldiers. So there's four squads of four. So the 16 soldiers who are guarding Peter, who are watching him, and verse 5 says this, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now this verse shows us that when the church is praying, we don't need to fear Herod, his soldiers. We don't need to fear the chains that are binding us. We don't need to fear those, those prison gates which cannot be opened without those keys. We do not need to fear the fortress which no one could escape from. All of the power of the kingdom of Herod that was arrayed against Peter was powerless against the power of prayer. That's basically what it's saying, is that prayer can break through all of those things. And this is one of the reasons why I have wanted to have a strong, strong prayer team behind me when I'm going to China, when I'm going to India. It says, constant prayer was offered up to God for him by the church. And in fact, you know, when I went on this last trip to India, I mean, I could just day by day sense the prayer, sense God's presence that was in my life. 
Um, and I was so grateful. You know, I had a team of people here that were praying, and I had a smaller team that, that had promised that any time the Spirit prompted them, day or night, they would continue to pray until they felt released from that prayer. And it was just absolutely amazing how God broke things open in India. It's just an amazing thing to me. So not even prison walls can stop the effectiveness of a church in prayer. Acts 13, verse 3, we see sometimes fasting must accompany prayer. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. It is fasting that according to Matthew 17, verse 21, is sometimes needed to break through and be able to cast out a demon. It is fasting that sometimes enable us to break through strongholds in our own fleshly desires. I've had, in terms of counseling, times where we've just gotten up against a brick wall, you know. We've made progress, but only so far. And I've said, okay, why don't you fast two days this next week? And they've busted right through that. It is fasting sometimes that it's enabled people to break through a tough addiction, like a tobacco addiction or something like that. And... Um, so I don't need to say more about that, only to encourage you that if your prayers are not being answered, try fasting. Try fasting. The next lesson is in Acts 16, verse 13. This verse shows you don't have to have the whole church meeting together, you know, in order to be able to pray. It says, on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. and We sat down and spoke to the women who met there. What a great Sabbath day activity, prayer. And here it was just the women who were gathered. Now, we don't know why it was only the women. Maybe the husbands weren't interested in the, the praying. And maybe you have been frustrated. You've got this deep down burden to pray. And you can't find very many people who share that burden with you. Don't worry about it. Gather the two or three or the few that you have and pray together. It doesn't need to be an official church meeting even. Um, many times God has expanded the river of revival out of such small clusters of, uh, of people. Now, this prayer meeting was beside a literal river, but l rivers of spiritual living water uh, can flow out of such immor uh, I I informal prayer meetings. Now, there are some neat lessons I'm going to skip over in Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns, which is another form of prayer in verses 25 and following, but let me skip over to chapter 20 and verse 36. And this will be our last lesson here. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. He knelt down. Now, I do want to say, first of all, that the Bible allows us to have all kinds of postures in prayer. It allows us to stand and to sit and to lie down flat on our face, you know. It uh, uh, allows us to pray in bed with our eyes lifted up, our eyes cast down. Uh, in other words, it gives us liberty, but I tell you, kneeling in prayer is one of the awesome, and it's a very frequent, um, what did I call it, mode of prayer, not mode of prayer, but position of prayer that you will find uh, in the Scriptures. And many times, it's, what's so awesome about this is that it symbolizes humility. And many times our spirits are affected by our outward posture. 
And I think you've probably witnessed that. I, I feel like I'm in a totally different, even in my spirit, a different atmosphere of prayer when I'm kneeling than when I'm standing. When you're outside, looking up at the heavens at night and all of the stars and the glory of that, it puts into you emotions and thoughts and attitudes that you probably don't have when you're praying, you know, in your, in your study. And so your context, your very physical posture, because God has made us a unity, soul... And, and body stuck together and they affect each other, I really encourage you to spend some time kneeling in prayer. My father uh, was the one who introduced that to me as early as I can remember. I don't remember a time when my dad wasn't kneeling with me uh, beside the bed. And some of my most awesome times of prayer have been times that were on my knees. <clears throat> in chapter... 21 verse 5 we see uh, the same thing it says when we had when we had come to the end of those days we departed and went on our way and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed when we had taken our leave of one another we boarded the ship and they returned home notice that they weren't even afraid of kneeling in public <laughs> I mean, right there on the shore, and the boat's waiting for them. Right there on the shore, they're having their prayer meeting. It's visible, tangible reminder. God is the creator. We are the creatures. I don't know why it is that it seems like it's Christians who are the only ones who are afraid of kneeling. Muslims sure aren't afraid of, of kneeling. And since God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, you know that verse, right? I think our whole being needs to embrace humility. Not just our souls, not just our, our, our minds, but even our bodies need to embrace this humility and say, Yes, Lord, you are the creator. We are the creatures. We come before you entirely dependent upon you. It was said of James that his knees looked like camel's knees because he had spent so much time on his knees praying before the Lord. We're going to have a knee inspection after the service here to see what your knees look like. But no, really, I just encourage you to spend time on your knees in prayer. Teach your children to do that. Sometimes have your family gather in your family devotions and say, let's just all get down. Let's kneel in prayer and express our dependence upon God. Now, we've had to keep this survey somewhat short this morning, but I hope it's opened up the subject of prayer a little bit more fully to you. And I hope you've come at the end of this sermon with a greater desire to be involved in prayer than when you started this. But let me end by quoting Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank and bless you for the privilege of prayer. It is a privilege, and yet how often we neglect it. Father, forgive us for that. Help us to be a people of prayer. May prayer so characterize our lives that even the pagans recognize that you are a God who answers our prayer life so much that they desire for us to pray for them, that they become jealous of the gospel, they become jealous of the privileges that we have been ushered into. Father, I pray that you would work by your spirit in our lives that spirit of prayer and supplication that the scriptures speak of and father may we find great delight in ministering to your heart 
as well as in petitioning you. Father, may we be a people of prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.